what you really believe you're going to live out. So what do you really believe? These individuals are demonstrating what they really believe, their faith. Uh, this, uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, I, have, I have two sons. Uh, one, as you know, is uh, going to Virginia Tech with, Baptist, with uh, Campus Fellowship Ministries. He's raised to support. My other son's in the Army. And uh, my son in the Army was sitting at a meal, and one of the other officers came up to him. He knew that Nathan was a Christian, and he, he said something to, to him, started off the conversation like this. How can you possibly, with a, with a scientific mind, thinking through things, believe in creation? How is that possible? And went on to explain what he believed in the, the explosion and uh, that the things just, they just happened. There was no greater being or anything like that. My son sat there and listened. By the way, he's a biology major, graduated from Christian college. Uh, he also has a seminary degree. He's been immersed in creationism. My point is this. He could have answered him point by point about creation. But this is what he said. This is great. He said, I got something better than that. He said, I believe God came in through Jesus Christ. And he came to take away our sins. As John the Baptist said, behold, the, the uh, Lamb of God that take away the sins of the world. And not only was he then arrested and beaten and tortured, but he was crucified. And he said, I even believe that he was buried and he rose again and for my sins, and therefore I put my faith and trust in him as my own Savior, that I can die, if I died right now, I know I'd go to heaven. He said, what do you think of that? He said, you're talking about creation. Listen, I'm talking about a Savior. And he said, the, the man just said there, sat there and said, hmm. You know, we're all worried about creation, but the bottom line is, you, you have your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, and because we have our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior, it makes a difference in how we practice, how we live out our lives. Do your friends know that you're a Christian? Would they even start that conversation with you? And how would you end it? Faith. Faith treats the future as the present and the invisible as the seen. Faith to rule for God. Now we're down to verse 32. We've covered all these other verses. Down to verse 32. Faith to rule for God. He is consolidating even more everything that he's talked about, these men of faith. And he comes down specifically in this verse to six, uh, six individuals. And, 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 and he could have mentioned Elijah, Elisha. He, he makes inference to them later, but he doesn't mention by them by name. And it's not to have an extensive historical uh, review, but examples to encourage, specifically, you've got to keep in mind what Hebrews was written to. Hebrews were written to Hebrew Christians. They were being persecuted. Some of, the, some of them were even compromised in their faith. And so this Hebrews chapter 11 specifically was trying to encourage them in their faith. That's why you have all these characters referred to here. So they're trying to encourage them in their faith. So these six men, as you look at verse 32... There is Gideon and Barak. There is Samson and Jephthah. And then there's David and Samuel. What do these six men have in common? 
What do these six men hold in common? They were all rulers for God. They were either a judge or a king. Samuel, for instance, he was the last judge and the first prophet. David, in that list of six, was the first king. And all the kings after David often make reference back to like the king of David or unlike the king of David. And so you have these all ruled for God as a judge or a king. Secondly, they all had glaring spiritual defects and failures. This is, this is what's the word of God never glosses over, doesn't hide or ignore or excuse sin or sinful behavior. Some would say maybe the glaring might be too strong of a word. Well, in the case of Samson and David, I think it is the best word to use. In the case of maybe Jephthah and Samuel, some discussion about Samuel, whether he really had any glaring failures other than his own sons. He appointed them judges, and it says they turned their judging in and perverted it for their own gain. He did not remove them from being judges. So that, that failure. So... All of them had some glaring spiritual defect or fail. And I will point some of those other things out, but we're, the, the, what we want to emphasize is their faith. And all exercise faith to overcome some incredible odds. This is, this is, this is great stuff as we look at this, and, and some great lessons to learn from this as we, as we look into uh, these uh, six, six individuals. First of all, uh, let me, before I get into this, five of these are judges. David's the only king. Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. Before Joshua died, he, he gathered all the children of Israel together. And this would be, I would say, the theme verse. I look at Joshua, I think this is the theme verse. Joshua said to them, listen, you choose this day whom you will serve, but for me and my house we will serve God. So we end up with Joshua. We look at this theme of Joshua. For me and my house, we will serve God. And that was, Joshua was consistent throughout his whole lifetime. For me and my house, we will serve God. And then we come to the book of Judges. Theme verse of Judges. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. What a contrast. And so we have these judges. What was happening in Canaan at this time? They were to conquer the land. Well, they, they failed in totally conquering the land. And so you had pockets throughout Palestine or for, throughout Israel in which different countries would come and attack them. The Midianites, the Ammonites, uh, the Amalekites, uh, Philistines, they would come and attack. And so God would raise up a judge in these localized areas to help put to, and sometimes they were oppressed for 40 years, 7 years, I mean, this is a, these were many times in which they were under the oppression of these different uh, nations. And he would raise up a judge to help deliver Israel from these nations. So these first, uh, the first four specifically uh, are the judges that we'll look at. Now, I, I, in looking at this, I'm, you know, in my mind, I've got to kind of get some order to it. I took the six judges and divided them in, into three groups of two. So when we look at, for instance, the first grouping of two, Gideon and Barak, they represent, I believe, faltering faith or weak faith. What's, you know what's encouraging about this? It's just like us. We have weak faith. Sometimes our faith stumbles and, and, and it trips. Barak and Gideon were examples of individuals who had, had weak faith. 
Gideon, he was, he was uh, this is, I just put this up there because it's kind of easy to remember. He was a frightened farmer. The Midianites had been oppressing uh, Israel. They had come in in raids, and they would uh, take whatever they wanted. They took land. They would, if the harvest crop was ready to be harvested, either they took the harvest or they trampled the harvest. They would take livestock. They, they, would do, they really did whatever they wanted. Israel could not do anything. And so Gideon was, l- let me read uh, Judges 6. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abirzerite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Uh, what's the significance of that? The winepress was a hidden area. And to what they would do, basically, would throw the wheat up in the air so the chaff would blow away. And then they'd gather the wheat that they had, and that's how they got their grain. Well, it was so much easier to go in the open space and do this openly, throw the wheat up in the air and have the chaff blown away. But because of the oppression of the Midianites, he was hiding. Now, I say that's, that's significant because of what the, the angel of the Lord says next. This is really great. He says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. He's hiding, you mighty man of valor. That's because the angel Lord knew he was going to put his hand in this man and he was going to deliver the Israel from the Midianites. Gideon's response, he says, Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? He kind of really ignored what the Lord was saying, O mighty man of valor. And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Did not the, did, do, but now the Lord has forsaken us, delivered us in the hand of the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm trying to think of every possible excuse I can. Find somebody else. And the Lord said to him, Surely, again he assures him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign. That, that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from me, I pray, until I come to you, bring out my offering, and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come. Here's the key phrase. Show me a sign that I will know it's really you. I'm here hiding. I'm not sure about things. I'm really weak. But show me a sign. Well, the Lord instructed him to go out and tear down the altars that were put up by his clan and uh, tear them down and instead turn them into an altar sacrificing to the Lord. Well, <laughs> Gideon, remember we're talking about faltering faith. Gideon, he, he couldn't get his clan members to help him. So he got his servants because he has power over them. They're not going to tell on him. So he got his servants and by night, okay, in the, in the dark of night, he goes, tears down the altar, built up a new one and sacrifices on it in the morning. The, the, the tribe clan comes out and sees the, the altar gone, and they're going, all right, 
who did this? Well, somehow the word got around, and they all said, Gideon. Oh. So they go over to Gideon's dad's house, father's house, and said, bring out your son. He's dead meat. His dad didn't deliver him, refused to deliver him. God, that was the sign, by the way, that God delivered to Gideon that he was the Lord and he was with, was with him. So a little bit of time passed, and finally, Gideon is given instructed to go out against the Midianites. The Midianites and the Malachites gather. The Malachites are also longtime enemies of Israel. They gather, and they're going to come up against Israel, and, and apparently, they're, this with 120,000 strong, they were going to do some bad business with them this time. And uh, God says, you go gather the army of Israel that you have, and you go out and meet them. So, uh, so Gideon... <laughs> He gets these 32,000 soldiers to go out against 120,000 soldiers of the many nights of Malachites. And God comes to, God comes to Gideon and says, uh, Gideon, you got too many. What? You got too many. So he said, hey, everybody that doesn't want to work or, or fight in this battle, you go ahead and go on home. 12,000 left. I'm sorry. Uh, 22,000 left. I'm sorry. 22,000 left. There's only 10,000 left. And so Gideon's, I mean, he, Gideon's, I mean, if I was Gideon, I'm thinking, hmm. God comes and says, Gideon, you got too many. Okay. I want you to go down to the river. Everybody that laps, drinks from the river with their hand to their mouth, watching, they stay. Everybody else that leans down into the water and drinks with their mouth in the face of the, of the water said they're out. 300. He went from 32,000 to 10,000. Now he's got 300. And Gideon, okay, this isn't the end of the story. Gideon is going like, I need a sign. I, I just need a sign. So this is where, you remember hearing about the fleece that was put out? And people use it, I'm going to put a fleece out. Well, Gideon put a fleece out. The first time he put the fleece out, he said, put the dew on the fleece and make the ground all around it dry. And sure enough, next morning he got up. That's exactly the way it was. Well, he said, hmm, you know, God, that was good. Maybe it was just an accident. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I want all the dew on the ground and I want the fleece dry. I want it totally reversed. Next morning, he worked out, and he got up. It was exactly what he wanted. So he followed instruction of the Lord. He had a torch, a pitcher, and a trumpet. He gave each one of the men a torch, a pitcher, and a trumpet. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go around the camp. When I instruct you, break the pitcher that encloses the torch and blow the trumpet. So at a point in time, broke the pitcher, lifted up, the torch, right hand had the trumpet and started blowing the trumpet. Well, this, this, the Midianites and the Malachites were so fearful, they thought a great host was coming upon them, they turned against each other and started to kill each other. Then they were fleeing, and the rest of Israel came out of the hills and the valleys and whatever and pursued them. There was not one man left among them. 300, 120,000. Frightened farmer, faltering faith, but because of his faith, he was used to accomplish a great task. He defeated the Midianites with a reduced army of 300, armed only with a trumpet, 
pitcher or a torch? I just got to have a sign. Just got to have a sign. Beric. Uh, Beric was a reluctant soldier. Uh, Beric, as he... Uh, Israel was being oppressed by Jabin, the king of Canaan. His general was um, Sisera. Uh, Sisera was the commander of the army. Now, this has gone on for 20 years. The notable thing about the, this, this army was they had 900 chariots. Now, you say, well, that wasn't a big deal. Israel didn't get a chariot until the monarchy was set up. They had no chariots, let alone arm, uh, iron chariots. This would be similar to, uh, in our day, of having a mobile tank that can move quickly, easily, any place, particularly on a flat area. And so they had these 900 iron chariots, and it said they had a, a host of other soldiers along with them. So I, I don't know exactly how they made, many they had. Let's take an estimate. Let's say there was three soldiers per chariot, and there was another 100,000 or 10,000 or 20,000. So this was a formidable, formidable army that was uh, that was coming. They were going to have to come up uh, against. Uh, th- in fact, this wasn't really going to be a battle. This would have been a massacre uh, if they went up against them. Anyway, in the, in the story, uh, Deborah, a prophetess, comes up to Barak and says, and this is interesting, Barak, hasn't the Lord told you to go up and rid our land of the Philistines? We're not told that God already talked to Barak, but apparently he had already given Barak this message, and the, the prophetess, Deborah, had to remind him of the, of the message that he was supposed to go out and carry out. And he said, remember, faltering faith, I'll go, but only if you go with me. He said, okay, I will go, but I want you to understand something. You will get no credit for this victory. The credit will go to a woman. Well, when you read that, you think, okay, it's probably Deborah, right? Oh, this is terrible. (laughs) They go out. They defeat these iron chariots. You know, God causes the confusion, of course. And they pursue them. And Sisera, the general, escapes on foot. And he finds a place where he can hide. It's it's a tent. And apparently the the, uh, lady that was there was inviting him in to to a place for rest and, and recuperation because he asked, I need some place to hide. And by the way, uh, don't tell anybody that I'm in here, by the way, because they're pursuing me. Well, she knew who he was, and she gave him some food and such to drink and eat, and he laid down and he was sleeping. <laughs> if, you, if you're squeamish stomach, don't listen to the rest of this. She took a peg, a tent peg, while he was sleeping and drove it through his temple to the ground and killed him. Her name was Jail. Jail the Nail. So Barak, he, he, he is faltering faith. He was encouraged by the prophetess. Deborah defeated the Canaan army of Sisera that was 900 chariots of iron strong. This was, again, this... It, it, God, listen, if God can use them, he can use you, and he can use me with their faltering faith. You'll never forget about jail the nail, though, 
Anyway, the next two, as we uh, come and look at them, is foolish faith. Uh, Samson, he was a, an immoral uh, womanizer, and uh, Jephthah, he was, he was actually a soldier of fortune, more of a mercenary. Uh, Samson, of course, uh, some probably the most well-known judge was Samson. Israel, Israel had been oppressed by the Philistines for over 40 years. God saw fit to raise up a judge to help relieve them uh, and deliver them from the Philistines, and of course that was Samson. Samson had a, came from a very godly home. Uh, they even sought the Lord on how to raise him. They, they, Samson came from a very godly home. He was a Nazarite. In other words, specifically, he had been set aside for service to God. So he had, he had the best of beginnings. He really did. But he, he willingly surrendered to his fleshly desire. Some think oh, he, he, he submitted or he surrendered to the charms of women. Listen, no one can make you commit adultery. No one can make you commit fornication. You did that because of your own fleshly desires. Samson did this because he wanted to, not because he was charmed by some woman. He did what he wanted to do. So Samson willingly gave it. But the end was, he was the instrument of God's deliverance of Israel. In Judges chapter 16, of course, is the famous story of Samson and Delilah. By the way, have you ever run into anybody named Delilah? There's a reason why. The same reason you never ran into anybody named Jezebel. Okay. So this is Samson and Delilah. She was a Philistine. He was giving in to his fleshly desires. In verse 16 of chapter 16, she had been paid to find out where he got his strength from. In chapter 16, verse 16, it says, She pestered him day after day after day. And, he, and he'd get, said stuff like, If you take the locks of my hair and weave it into the, the loom, I will lose all my strength. Well, she woke him up and said, The Philistines would be fine. He, he, he got up and yanked on his hair and pulled the, the weaving boom out and hung for, And I don't know how much that weighed, but it couldn't, have hurt, it couldn't have felt good. But obviously it didn't bother him any. Uh, then he okay, so... He, he, another time he said, if you bind me with new rope, my, my strength will leave me. So he, had, he was sleeping. The Philistines came in, tied him with new rope. I don't know how, why he didn't wake up. Maybe God didn't allow him to wake up. But they woke him up and says, the Philistines be behind. He got up, broke all the ropes. So he did this time after time after time. That's why she was pestering him about it, uh, because he kept tricking her. And, of course, she wanted the money. Finally, you might say out of frustration, he told her the truth. If you cut my hair, a razor has never touched my head. If you cut my hair, I will lose my strength. When Delilah saw that he had told her all this, his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her, brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength had left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him 
with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after he had been shaven. This is easy to remember. He had foolish faith. But it's also, uh, the illustration of Samson is also an illustration of the power of sin. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about temptation. Temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. He willingly gave in to his sinful fleshly desires. And what was the power of sin? The power of sin is blinding. They took him, and what was the first thing they did? They blinded him. That's the blinding power of sin. Then it says they put him in bronze fetters, basically in chains. That's the binding power of sin. When we give in our fleshly desires, we really be, we have blinders on, and that's all we're focused on. That's the blinding power of sin. Then there's the binding power of sin. And then they took him into a grist mill. And for his remaining days, and we're not sure how long that took for his hair to grow out, for his remaining days, he was grinding. He was grinding. Day after day, walking in a circle in the place of a donkey or an ox at the grist mill, grinding the wheat, grinding the grain into flour. There is the blinding power of sin. There is the binding power of sin. And there is the grinding power of sin. If you give in to your fleshly desires, I don't know what stage you're at. Maybe you're in the grinding part very uncomfortable there's no relief and remember this he couldn't see where he was going he only had to go in a circle he had to have somebody lead him to the place he had somebody lead him out he had somebody bring him food the blinding binding and grinding power of sin but he did trust God in the end as he was grinding away, and then he had been taken in back to his cell, they were having a big celebration in the temple of the what the Philistines worshipped. I forgot the name of their idol. And they said, hey, let's bring Samson in here and make sport of him. In other words, you know, take a sharp stick, poke the blind guy. That's really what it amounted to. But let's torture him. We got power over this guy. He's been our nemesis forever, but now we got him. Well, he when the... A lad apparently led him in. He said, chain me to the two main pillars of the temple that support everything in here. And the lad did that. And Samson then, there in Judges 16, prayed one more time. He said, God, just come upon me one more time. Give me the power to avenge you, to avenge Israel one more time. Give me the strength to push or pull these pillars down so it collapses on all these Philistines are here in this big orgy, this big party. Well, guess what? The power of God came upon him. The temple fell. He killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his whole life. He did trust God to help deliver him just one last time. In the end, he willingly gave his life to defeat the Philistines. But it was foolish, so foolish, he came around to the end, but that blinding, blinding and grinding power of sin had a grip on him all of his life. Let me, let me say this. We're going to talk about David a little bit too. 
not as extensively here as Samson, but when we look at these, sometimes we get the idea that, you know what, it's okay. if God forgave these guys, he's going to forgive me. I can just go on my, own, my merry old way. Let me just say this. Would you want to suffer the consequences that Samson had to face? Or David, the sword never left his house. His own son tried to kill him. Even after he died, there was, there was a, a uh, rebelling going on to try to, to take the kingdom away from his son Solomon. These were all results of his sinful behavior. And here was David, a man after God's own heart. But Samson, a moral womanizer. Then there's Jephthah. Jephthah is a soldier of fortune. Jephthah, Israel was being oppressed by the Ammonites. He was the illegitimate son of a harlot, and he was rejected by his brethren. He ran away, rather than be tortured by his brethren, and he uh, organized basically an army of mercenaries, of bandits, that became actually very powerful. Uh, The the, uh, family, because of being oppressed by the Ammonites, said, you know what, We we can't possibly defeat them. We need help. So they sent for guess who? Their despised half-brother, Jephthah. And Jephthah, Jephthah came, and, and he was a soldier of fortune. He was a mercenary. But the reason he's carried in this area of foolish faith is because before he went out to the Ammonites, he said, God, if you give me the victory, the first thing that walks out of my house when I get back, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering unto you. When he came back from the, ba- the battle... The first thing that walked out of his house that he was supposed to sacrifice as a burnt offering to God was his only daughter. And, and he was crushed. Now, did he actually sacrifice her on the altar? No. This is what I believe happened. Uh, because, that, first of all, that was illegal. That wasn't, that wasn't uh, allowed by God to, for human sacrifice. There were, there were women that served at the temple dedicated their lives on the Lord, and they helped the serve of the temple t- taking care of different, different things. For instance, when Samuel was taken by his mother to the temple, I, I think he probably, we're, I'm guessing, three to five years old, who cared for him? Not Eli. Well, we believe that, that were, there was these women that had dedicated themselves to the service of God. They were at the temple. This is what I believe that Jephthah did. He didn't sacrifice her on a burnt offering because that wasn't that was illegal. Uh, but I believe that he set her aside then for this time. Uh, but she never married, never had children, but she was dedicated on the Lord the rest of her life. So, foolish faith. He conquered the Ammonites, but was haunted by his foolish vow to sacrifice his daughter. Remember, this is his only daughter, his only child uh, that he had. Foolish faith. Fearless faith. These are, these, these are heroes to me. I mean, I, when I think of uh, David and Samuel, David, he was a humble shepherd. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, all the way to 1 Kings chapter, chapter 2, with San, uh, uh, David, uh, Saul, in 1, Thessal, or 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul had been crowned king. And he had disobeyed God. In fact, he, he had even offered a sacrifice which was only to be done by the priests. He'd offered sacrifice, he made excuses, and he was told by Samuel that he was going to be replaced the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That's why when we talk about David, he was a man after God's own heart. All the, the, when, you, when you look at David, and if you know, he committed murder, he committed adultery, he lied. 
He was filled with pride. You've never done any of those things, right? Maybe the pride issue, might, maybe. You've never done any of those things. But one thing that marked David is when he was confronted by God, whether it be by a prophet or by God himself, he always, okay, always humbled himself and put himself back in the position of fellowship with God that he had to have. And we have, of course, from David, we have the Psalms, the book of Psalms. These are real-life experiences. And he writes in Psalm 57, when he, he was talking about his relationship, he says, my heart is steadfast, it's fixed. Oh my God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give you praise. All the issues that David had, there's one thing that was true. He was, he was, he was steadfast and he was fixed on God. He's the one that wrote when he fled from his son who was trying to take the throne. He said, my heart, my heart, like a heart pants after the water brook, my heart, my heart, my life, I pant after you, oh God. I want you. This is out of life experiences. He put them into Psalms. That's why the Psalms are such a blessing to us. Why it's so soothing. Because these are real life experiences that David has put into the word. He was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, that's an inter interesting story too, real quickly. Oh, this is, this is good. Samuel, okay, was the last judge, the, the first prophet. Samuel was the judge who God sent to anoint David to be king. Samuel is the same one who told Saul, you're going to be replaced. Samuel was so revered and feared that when he came over into a country or into a land or to a city, word already always spread before him and said, Samuel's coming. Samuel's coming. So either people did one of two things. They got out of the way and left the country because they didn't want to see Samuel because they thought maybe Samuel might be coming to see them. Or they just waited for him. So Samuel's going to anoint David as king. No one knows this except Samuel. And so here comes Samuel walking over the hills, and it says that Jesse saw him off to the distance, and he thought, oh boy, get the fatted calf. We've got to make a sacrifice. I don't know what judgment he's going to bring on us, but it, it's when he comes, it's not a good thing. So he comes, he gets there, and of course they're fearful, and they, they do all their, their entertainment and things that go on, and then Samuel delivers the message. By the way, I'm here to anoint one of your sons to be the next king. So he goes down the list, and he, and he looks at these young men, and he's going, wow, now that guy's a man. He's surely got to be the king. And God says, no, it's not him. So he goes down the list, and finally he, he runs out of sons. And Samuel says to Jesse, he said, well, do you have any more sons? And Jesse almost apologetically says, oh, yeah, I got this other kid. He's out herding the sheep. He isn't much to look at. We'll get him. And God said, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Because David was a man after God's own heart. He was a, he was a humble shepherd that, that God put his hand upon. He slew Goliath as a teen. Under his leadership, Israel became a power, a world power to be reckoned with. He slew Goliath as a teen. He was a man after the heart of God. He was a humble shepherd. Samuel, I've told you already a little bit about Samuel. Uh, Samuel, uh, the faithful steward, from the time, oh, by the way, talk about a great home. 
We talk about Samson having a great home. Samuel had equally a wonderful home. And Hannah had prayed. She was, she was barren. She had prayed that God give her a child. And if, she, if God did, he, she would dedicate him to the Lord. She kept him until he was weaned, which was probably around three to five years old. She, then she delivered him to the temple. Again, I believe that's where the women of the temple who had dedicated themselves to that service took care of him. Probably when he was about a teenager then, we have this recorded to us. Again, teenager, let's say 15 to 17, someplace in that age. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli and Word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. These, this is, remember, these, this is the day of the judges. These are dark days. These are dark days. And it happened at that time, as Eli was lying down in his place, now his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the, in the temple of the, of the Lord, where the ark of God was, that the Lord called Samuel and said to him, said, Here I am. I'm sorry. And the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down. So he went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called at other times, as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have, I have sworn to the house of Eli the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel laid down in mourning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the, the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And he said, What is your word that you spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that it spoke to you. And Samuel told him everything, hid nothing. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what he seems good to him. Thus Samuel grew, the Lord is with him, let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. From the beginning of his days as a young teenager to the day he died, we believe he was probably, I'm going to say, possibly 70-ish. To the day he died, he had an unwavering and glowed brightly in a day of much spiritual darkness in Israel. He was a faithful steward. Listen, fearless faith. You and I can have fearless faith. Now, most of us have faltering faith, but we can have a fearless faith. We can be faithful in a dark world. 
Samuel is certainly an example for us that of uh, for us of that of of fearless faith. Quickly, okay. I say that quickly. I, I mean that seriously. What can we learn from these these uh, examples of faith? I put uh, four verses up here. Psalm one one to three. It's this is written. Uh, the reason I included this is written by David. It's the first psalm. It's the foundation that the book of Psalms is written on. And some also believe it's the capstone. It's like, okay, the foundation is Psalm 1, and that you know what the capstone of all the psalms are? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, nor standeth in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Isn't the Word of God wonderful? Isn't it awesome? It talks about the negative, but it never leaves us without the positive. He doesn't walk with the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit with the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He is willing to saturate himself in Scripture, so when the pressure comes on, what comes out? The Scripture. Blessed is that man. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, I couldn't help but think of the chastening of the Lord. Chastening seems to be joyful, yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this. You've got to get this to understand. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. No chastening seems to be joyful, yet it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Man came to his pastor, godly man. He said, Pastor, I just wish God didn't love me so much. Did you catch that? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Hey, if, you, if you're not being yanked back from the sinful lifestyle that you may be indulging in, if you're not getting hit inside the head with a two-by-four to get your attention, why is that? Has he allowed you to give yourself over completely to it? Or is he trying to get your attention? See, he chastens who he loves. Samson, David, were chastened. They didn't get away with anything. He chastens who he loves. It yields that peaceable fruit of righteousness. And then 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. I've heard this verse used for revival in context this message is what is being given uh, to uh, Israel, talking to them about national forgiveness of their sin. Israel was under the law. Israel was under a covenant document. We are not under the law. We are under grace. In application, can we use this verse to call our nation to revival? Yes, I believe we can. But keep it in context as an application of this, of this truth. Now, let me say this. I'm going to go political on you a minute. This is not political correct, what I'm going to say. We need to really pray for our country. It really doesn't matter what pol political persuasion you are. We really need to pray for our country. You think, you think of the infringement upon our rights that's only a moment of time away from our religious freedoms. We really need to pray for our country. And I'm not talking about just the election. I'm talking about the good news. 
we ourselves as believers may need to experience a revival ourselves and become hot for the gospel. Become hot to share it with others. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked way, then I shall hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We really need to pray for our country. Lastly, this is awesome. Lamentation chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. Lamentation, of course, is written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Israel, ha- Israel has been defeated. Is, he's sitting on the ash heap as the prisoners are being led away. The, he was treated better by the Babylonians than he was by his own people. He was given his freedom. But yet he loved his people. He loved God. And as he sat on the ash heap there watching the prisoners go away, he says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You and I will fail. But God never fails. His justice is exact. His timing is his time time is exactly uh, placed. His justice is appropriate. But he's full of mercy. Don't presume upon that mercy, but understand this: we deserve a lot worse than he gives us full of mercy. What can we learn from these examples of faith? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the truth and the blessing, encouragement of faith, of these men of faith. Lord, I pray even now that as we go forward, as we seek and think of this country and our country and our people and the gospel and our responsibility, that we truly will be faithful in it and through it. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Ken, just, just pray for me. I, I'm struggling in some areas of faith. Is there anyone like that? If you're here this morning and, and, I, and, and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, but you would like to have someone show you from the Word of God how you can be saved, is there anyone like that? Father, we thank you, God, for all you provided. Great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray.